This is the Future of Agriculture podcast, the show that explores the people, companies, and ideas shaping the future of agribusiness. If you're curious about innovations in ag tech, rural entrepreneurship, ag sustainability, or food security, this is the show for you. Let's get started. Again, thanks so much for downloading this episode of the Future of Agriculture podcast. My name is Tim Hamrich. I'm an ag recruiter. So if you know anybody looking to hire or be hired in ag tech or agribusiness, send me an email, tim at aggrad.com. This show is part of the Farm and Rural Ag Network. So if you like ag podcasts like this one and also vlogs and blogs and other cool stuff, head over to their website, farmruralag.com. Well, I have wanted to do an episode or series of episodes on water issues for quite some time. I really started thinking more about it and and doing some research this fall when I moved from Texas back west to the Boise, Idaho area and just thought more and more about how fundamental water is specifically to those agricultural systems which rely on irrigation. Now, I realize if you're in the Midwest, uh, this year you've had a whole other water issue, which is too much water, too much rainfall, flooding in fields, inability to get a crop planted in time. And I definitely want to acknowledge that. However, this episode and a few others that we'll touch on this summer are going to be focused more on agricultural systems that rely on irrigation and what irrigation does to the groundwater, to our aquifers, to the lakes and rivers that we have to divert water from, and how we handle those issues and balance them with not only conservation of nature, but also with our our urban consumers that also want the water for their own purposes and how all of that sort of ties together what the policy says and how we should be looking at it and its impact on the future of agriculture. Well, I couldn't have picked a better guest to bring on the show to start discussing some of these issues for the first time than Dr. David Zetlin. Dr. Zetlin is a political economist who was born and raised in California, has traveled around the world and got his PhD from UC Davis, my alma mater, in ag and resource economics, where he studied wholesale water distribution in Southern California. His thesis was called Conflict and Cooperation Inside of an Organization, a case study of the Metropolitan Water District of Southern California. He is now a university lecturer at Leiden University College in The Hague, which is in Holland, and the author of books such as Living with Water Scarcity, which you can pick up for free at his website. If you listen to the end, you'll hear exactly where to go to get that for free. You can get the PDF, as well as the popular blog, Aguanomics, and um, got some fantastic stuff going on. He's just passionate about water issues and looking at things through the lens of an economist. Then after the interview with Dr. Zetlin, you're going to get to hear from our five-minute farmer this week, which is Will Schultze. He's a dairy farmer in Wisconsin who him and his brother have also started a direct-to-consumer beef business, which is a really interesting story as to why and how they're going about doing that. Great episode here. I know you're going to enjoy it. Here first is my interview on water economics with Dr. David Zetlin. Maybe a good way to start framing this conversation is, as I told you, we're, we're about 160 episodes into this. We, uh, it's almost become cliche in agriculture to talk about feeding 9 billion people. But at least in, in my experience, we almost never talk about the water issues surrounded by you know, trying to feed a growing population and just trying to provide enough water for them. Could you give us sort of maybe a good sense of how much we should be concerned about the water side of, of, of just supplying the resources needed for a growing population? Uh, Yeah. So my first comment is that we should be panicking. 
that's because water is a, a pretty important input to agriculture. You've got land, which we're doing okay with. There's problems with soil degradation, topsoil losses and so on, which are actually quite alarming, according to my soil scientist friends. But even they say we have 50 years or so before we're, we have no fertile soil. So the case with water, which is another major input, and then we can talk about essentially fertilizer, which could be manufactured almost without limit by using natural gas. But that's, of course, a problem with uh, climate change. So, you know, you worry about land, labor, water, fertilizer. Those are your big inputs. And water, I believe, is the most constrained input. And water is used by, I just have a rough number on the top of my head, about a third of agriculture around the world or 25% is irrigated meaning the rest is depends on seasonal rains. And that third of agriculture supplies about 50% of the food that we eat. I have some kind of vague ratio in, in mind. So controlled water is very important for growing food and feed crops if you're growing animals, uh, which is a, another issue about the demand side. But the, the real thing that I'm concerned about that I mentioned to most audiences is that we have been using groundwater at an extremely fast, non-sustainable rate. And what that means is that there's less and less water against a drought, for example, and there's less and less water just for daily operations. And as climate change starts to bite, those water supplies become even more valuable, even more fragile. But there's no sign that we're actually putting any savings away, so to speak, for future water shortages. So I think we're going to have a real problem feeding our current population, feeding the, the higher population at a which is going to be richer, which requires roughly double the food, is going to be extremely difficult. I know, I'm, as an economist, I know something's going to happen, but I'm very, very uncertain and, and fearful in a way about how the supply and demand are going to be reconciled. What's uh, maybe a, either a data point or a story you can share w with us to really kind of drive home this point that, as you said, kind of we should be panicking because I obviously understand in concept, water is fundamental to, to life, period. And, and if, we're, if we're just pumping without really understanding the consequences, inevitably that's going to come back and, and, you know, hit us in the face. But what, what's a kind of either, either a, a story or, or data point that's out there right now that, that really kind of drives on this point, like, hey, this is coming sooner than we think? Yeah, I think that the, the stories are essentially every time a farmer has to drill a deeper well, that's your story. And any of your listeners can probably have their own experience or someone close by whose well started to suck air and they said, hmm, this is funny. That worked for 20 years or whatever. And now I've got to drill a deeper well. And maybe my current well is, is uh, 50 feet or 50 meters, or maybe it's now it's 500 feet. Now I've got to go to 1,000 feet. You know, there's, there's all kinds of evidence around there that the wells have to keep going deeper. What that means in the short term is that, you know, when you start sucking air, you can't irrigate your crop today. And maybe not for uh, several months because... Uh, the, the, the drilling guys might be busy with a whole bunch of other contract agreements that they have to drill other people deeper. So I don't think you would, most farmers are, are way ahead of this curve, so they wouldn't lose a crop necessarily, but they would have to plan ahead. And especially if they're, if they're keeping orchards alive, that groundwater is, is pretty much the insurance uh, policy so that you don't lose your trees. And if you lose your groundwater and you can't replenish in time, then you know you might lose a tree orchard that you've spent five or seven years bringing up to to fruition, and that's a huge investment to lose just because you can't get any water anymore. 
what I'd like to talk about more with you because is is sort of the idea of water markets. I think most of us are naive to sort of how water works, how water moves, kind of the supply and demand of water. Can you sort of explain maybe just the water markets 101 to us? Sure. When we're talking about agriculture, there's two major major sources of water. One of them is groundwater, which you uh, which farmers tend to have the rights to use underneath their land. There's lots of regulations around that. They vary all over the place. Depends on the irrigation district, depends on the, the state, and so on. So let's just say that there is there's groundwater to which farmers have some kind of property right, usually based on the the fact that their land is above it. Then you have surface water, which is much more interesting which is where you have a, a big canal, for example, and a bunch of side canals, and you have a water users association that shares the cost of maintaining those canals, and then each of the farmers might have rights to that water. The largest one in the, in the U.S. is the Imperial Irrigation District, which takes about, if I recall correctly, half of California's water from the Colorado River, and 14, so it's about 15% of the Colorado River's entire water supply. So when you get the Imperial Valley, they have a massive canal bringing water out of the Colorado River, and that gets distributed among all of its farmers via, in the case of Imperial, an administrative arrangement. And when you start talking about water markets, let's, let's start with the most simplest one. That's when two farmers are adjacent to each other, and one says, hey, I, I'm not going to take all my water right this year from the irrigation district. How about I, I send you a couple acre feet um, and you send me a couple acre feet next year or you buy me a nice dinner or whatever that is. So an informal market between two people is just you know, trading water. I think that's probably been happening for most of human history. When you get into more interesting markets, that's when you have, for example, all of the farmers in an irrigation area and they are buying and selling water with each other. And they're using the same infrastructure. They know each other, so the, the costs are quite low. If someone doesn't pay up, then everybody can bring social pressure. And then you get to a more the most sophisticated market where you have farmers and other users. Could be industry, could be such as frackers. That's very common. It could be cities, and those other users are connected with the, the farmers via different distribution networks, large scale distribution networks, and that's where you would have a market where. Farmers typically are the sellers because they typically have senior water rights and they are selling typically for very high prices compared to how much money they could make from the water growing anything on their crop, uh, sorry, on their land because the industry and, and cities will pay 10 times higher prices. So those kinds of water markets, the ones that we kind of imagine like Wall Street kind of thing, that means that you have to have a shared infrastructure for delivery of the water and that means you have to have a mechanism for settling, buying, and selling. And that mechanism can be quite simple or can be quite complicated because you have to worry about uh, leakage on the way and so on. But that's that market can function pretty well. The, the last thing I'll say, because I just said a whole bunch, uh, and I'll let you uh, butt in with more questions. The last thing I'll say is that I'm a big fan of, of having water markets in terms of a lease hold to water so that I sell the, the right to use my water for one year or I sell my water but not my right as opposed to a water market where you sell the right permanently, you sell the right to water, which I think is rather too strong a market for the way that we understand water flows in the sense that we can, a farmer might make a sale that everybody will regret that's a one-way sale of a, of a water right. Thank you for that. Is that the way the markets tend to work? I mean, are they free enough to where a farmer could buy and sell those water rights? I'm, I'm, I'm teeing you up here a little bit. 
Yeah, no, it's a it's a nice softball question. So no, it does they don't work that way. So the, there are some markets that do work very well. And Colorado Big Thompson is a very famous market in the United in, Cal, in, in Colorado. It's been studied for decades. Colorado Big Thompson was a very easy market to set up because all of the water arrived via an aqueduct. So all of the recipients of that water were new users of water, and they they unitized the rights right from the beginning. So everybody had unitized rights, which means that they're easy to trade with each other. And in that market, I think the transaction costs are low, the trading frequency is high, and everybody's happy because it's the water is being used for ver- among various agricultural users. In more typical markets, you don't have anything like a spot market. So a spot market is where I just say, hey, you know, today I want to buy shares in Google. And I go to wherever Google trades, NASDAQ, I guess, and I put some money in my account, I buy some Google, and I, the transaction has cur- occurred with me and some anonymous person literally within seconds. Water markets don't work that way because the water has to be delivered and it's a lot harder to deliver than a, a paper or an electronic right to a share. So what that means is you have to coordinate the transfer of water from the source of the right to the, the, the sink in terms of where the user wants to use it. That means um, almost always that it has to be transferred through some infrastructure. In California, it's very common that you have to file some kind of environmental paperwork, which can slow things down by months. So it's a very much slower market. The most functional, larger scale market in the world, there's two of them. One is in Chile. The other one is in Australia. I'll talk about the Australia one. And that's where people can buy and sell either permanent rights or temporary flows, uh, like I mentioned before. And if you ship the water from yourself to someone else downstream, there's an automatic deduction that's calculated into this for the environment and for those conveyance losses. So those trades can actually settle very quickly. And you can take delivery of your water fairly quickly, but for example, still in a week. So in that sense, water markets, after a lot of effort and development, are functioning as best as can be expected in some parts of the world. But in the U.S., it's very rarely the case. And that is where I, as an economist, say that's because we haven't treated water as a valuable commodity for many decades. And we don't have those institutions for managing that scarcity and allowing people to buy and sell and, and, and make money on it. So that's kind of a, a, a missed opportunity for a lot of farmers, either on the buy side or the sell side. Yeah. Can we drill into that a little bit more about, about kind of the, the value of water? You know, I think a lot of people say, well, water, water is free. It falls from the sky. It, it's stored in the ground or it's stored in our rivers or it's stored in this, this surface infrastructure you're talking about. Can, can you talk more about that from an economist's perspective? Yeah, I mean, the, there's a couple things. One is that in, in history and in tradition with agriculture, we didn't think about having to pay to take delivery of water. You would literally throw a pump in the river and pump as much as you want, or you would, you know, drill a, a, a well on your property and pump as much as you want because it was it was like that free. You and the only cost you paid was the cost of delivery. That's actually true for a lot of tap water right now. We pay for the cost of delivery, so the water itself, as a right, is often given away for free by politicians, either to cities in the case of urban water or to farmers based on all kinds of laws and traditions over the, over the centuries. So that is how we think about it mentally, uh, emotionally. Uh, when you think about labor, you don't just say, hey, buddy, come over here and work for free. You have to pay that person for their time. If you think if you want to buy a machine that's going to run on diesel, you have to pay for the manufacturer, you have to pay for the diesel. So water has been an input that has been pretty undervalued compared to all the other inputs that farmers are used to. 
And free is great when, as long as there's too much water. And, and the reason that my first book is called The End of Abundance and my second book is called Living with Water Scarcity is because that world where farmers could take as much as they could afford to in terms of their, their pump capacity, that world is going away uh, or it's gone. In that sense, we have to tra- start treating water as a scarce commodity. And that means to know how much water is out there in terms of your local uh, aquifer or your local watershed, uh, who has the rights to that water. Uh, very importantly, are there more rights uh, as in claims on the water than there is actual wet water, which means that you're going to have lawsuits and, and fights because you know there might be 10 people claiming a certain unit of water. So you have to figure out all of those facts, essentially, before you can even deliver water through an administrative system. And that's where a lot of communities are currently struggling with you know figuring out who gets less water. Once you unitize the water and you identify the, the owners uh, to the water, then you can start buying and selling it. And the value that, that the, the, the price that emerges, let me, let me set this up as an economist, the price that emerges reflects the different values. So if I'm selling you water, let's say I'm selling you water for $50 an acre foot, and I uh, can grow a crop and I'm going to make a profit, a water profit of 40 bucks a foot on that water, but I could sell it to you for 50 bucks a foot, then yeah, I'm making way more money by selling it to you because I, I don't even grow that crop, right? I'm following my land. And then you get it and you're saying, oh, well, I need to keep my, my trees alive because I'm growing cons and that might be worth 200 bucks a foot to you. And you're paying 50 and, and it's worth 200. So you're very happy also because your pecan trees are alive. Right. I, I, along with that, I, I, I found uh, a post you wrote very interesting about how we perceive agricultural use of water. Like who's really capturing the value from agricultural water? Can, can you can you explain more yeah. about that? Yeah, that's a that's a funny one. So basically, people say that farmers use the water, and the statistic that's thrown around is eighty to ninety percent of the water in the world is used for agriculture. The rest is used for like urban and industrial. That those percentages totally ignore environmental water, which is a major uh, problem because if you don't count environmental water and you have no environmental water, then you're all dead because you live in a desert. But ignoring that problem. So farmers use, quote unquote, 80 to 90 percent of water, and they clearly don't use that for taking showers. They use that for growing crops. And ultimately, that goes to the people that consume food. So the, the, the logic here of who uses the water is really that the final consumer uses the water. It's the same kind of logic that, that makes people confused with, with carbon accounting. So people say, oh, China has a lot of carbon emissions uh, and America has uh, less carbon emissions. but then you, that's looking at carbon emissions from a producer side of things. If you look at it from a consumer side of things, and goods are being shipped from China to the United States, ignoring Trump's tariff shenanigans, then the, the consumption of that good in the United States, the demand for that good in the United States is responsible for that carbon emissions. So if you do accounting based on production, then it looks like China is a big consumer of carbon or emitter of carbon. If you do accounting based on consumption, then China is a, is a lower emitter because you're looking at, at Americans as consumers of those goods, therefore consumers of carbon. It's the exact same logic for, for food and fiber. The consumers of those agricultural products are ultimately responsible for that water consumption. And farmers are doing the best they can to grow that, those crops at the lowest possible price and the highest possible quality, et cetera. But ultimately, they're only on the supply side and the demand side of consumers is 
where we could, if we wanted to, register that consumption of water, the responsibility, let's call it. Yeah, I think that that was a big paradigm shift for me where it's like, well, if, you know, if the value to the farmer is a small percentage of what the consumer pays, you know, because that's what they get for for their their crop, uh, then, then that also is kind of the value of the water that they're using too versus how much the consumer is actually paying. I just thought that was a, a huge shift. And then also along with that, the, the amount of crops that we export, essentially looking at that as exporting water, that was a big paradigm shift for me too. Yeah, exporting water, which is, which is called sometimes virtual water uh, by people who does, do this kind of accounting, is pretty interesting because, and, and that's, I'm saying that because of the political and social message, because a lot of people say, we need water to grow food so we have food security. Those same people tend to ignore the fact that a, a food uh, from the regions that are, that are making those claims, food is actually exported not just out of the county, not just out of the state, but out of the country. So if we're talking about using uh, our water resources to benefit ourselves, that might be true in terms of the farmer making a profit, selling it, selling alfalfa to Saudi Arabia, which is what happens in the Colorado River Basin. But it's not the same as, as uh, the, the farmer supporting local community in terms of more food to eat because that water ultimately is being consumed uh, elsewhere. And, and this is going to revert back a little bit to the earlier conversation, but if, if I'm a farmer and I do want to look at, you know, trading some of my water rights, what can I do? You know, I, I know it depends on where you are legislation wise or government wise, but w what would be the first step if you were a farmer in say California and you said, boy, my almond trees are getting to the end of their, you know, usable life. I'm probably gonna have to replant. Maybe I could just sell my water for a couple of years and then get back into it. What do you, what do you do in that situation? Yeah, so I actually wrote a paper about this called the All-In Auctions for Water. And the, it, how it works is, is, is this. In the simplest case, you might have a farmer with a bunch of neighbors who share water in an irrigation district. And that's because they share the maintenance costs and the administration of the distribution system that they collectively use and own. And that could be 100 years ago that was founded. So... If there are farmers in that irrigation district and they all have rights, let's say there's 100 farmers and each of them has the right to five units of water, then you have 500 units of water. And in the past, maybe all of them, they just used five units of water year after year and that's the way it was. But if you wanted to have a marketplace, then what you need to do is you need to say, I'm going to sell you a unit of water and we're going to register that at the the main office, which is often the coffee shop, right? So you go in the coffee shop, you write it on the board, you say, David uh, sold Tim a unit of water. I think that's the direction. Let's stick with that direction. I sell you a unit of water and the, 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 the I forgot the, the, there's a name in Spanish for the, the guy who walks the canals and manages the water. But the, the guy who's the, the water manager says he sees that record and everybody agrees it's true. And then that is the water market. That's the trade, right? And you send me some money and I write it on the board and I acknowledge the sale. So water markets can start off very simple, very informal, very low record keeping. All of that because you have, you know, all the buyers and sellers and they share the same infrastructure. And in that case, you, you have a, a willing transaction. And if you're good, you want to have a season when you do this. So for example, you're saying I'm selling you the water. So I'm the one that's, that's fallow some of my acreage because my trees are going out of production. So what I do is I say, I'm going to put a unit of water on the market right now. I'm going to fallow, 
and we have to do that trade before your season begins for your own planning purposes. So trading might actually occur only once a year. It might occur more often if you're finishing some crops, et cetera, it depends on water deliveries, et cetera. But the, the main idea is that there's a, a, a reasonably predictable time when people are buying and selling water rights that allows them to uh, go in the market and be a buyer and a seller. And when I wrote this paper, All in Auctions for Water, that one is all about the most efficient way to do this so that some people may be for sure buyers and some are for sure sellers. And some might buy or sell if the price is right, but the auction allows that price to emerge. So that makes everybody's values, which are confidential information, it helps them reconcile those values so the community is the best off with its limited amount of water. Very interesting. In the past, you know, there's been so many political struggles when it comes to water in, in the U.S. And, and I know you have talked about sort of the difference, uh, the different way that folks in, in the Netherlands, where you live now, look at resources like water versus the way somebody in the U.S. would. Could you talk about some of those differences? Yeah. Oh, God, there's, there's a lot there. So let me just try and touch on two things. So Two things, three things. Okay, so three things. The simplest one is the Netherlands has too much water. So they have a problem of not enough land and too much water. Almost everywhere else in the world, there's too little land, uh, sorry, too little water, plenty of land. So the Dutch are, are managing land scarcity and most people in the world are managing water scarcity. The second one is that in the Netherlands, people working together is very normal because if they do not work together, for example, to keep the ocean from submerging the, 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 the western half of the country, which is roughly true. I, you know, where I live in Amsterdam, it's, it's a little bit below sea level. So if, if the dikes and, and the other infrastructure was not maintained in the Netherlands, we would be underwater. So that means that people in the Netherlands are much more used to working together collectively, which means paying their taxes. It means showing up for the cleanup day. It means telling your neighbors that they have to do their part also. And that's not the case in the United States where it tends to be me for myself and, and my private activities. And if I inter, interact with my community, it's very limited. And I, and I certainly don't like paying taxes, which is a kind of a funny side story. So that's the second thing. The Dutch are very used to working together to manage water, they call water safety. And in some parts of the world, they manage water scarcity very well. Uh, I would say the one that does the best job is Singapore. Second best is Israel, but they have some, some serious problems with, with Palestinian water that they're using. But the Israelis take water scarcity quite seriously. So that's like national security levels, water management. And then the last thing I'll say, which is uh, also very different, is that in Europe, resources were very scarce and overconsumed around, let's say, 1600 or so, or 1500, let's make it easy. And at that time, the new world was discovered, and it was full of more or less free stuff. And if you ignored the problem of killing off all the local people and, and therefore declaring it free, uh, Americans, Canadians, Australians, New Zealanders, uh, South Africans, all of these settlers, they came to these continents and they had a fantastic windfall of resources and their culture grew up around plenty for everybody, if you don't, if you use it up, move along, go find it somewhere else. The same is true in South America to a degree, but I'm, I'm more familiar with English-speaking history. And so in that sense, the culture of resource consumption in North America is not very sustainable in a sense because people have not been used to limiting their consumption for hundreds of years the way they have in Europe. So it kind of changes the way people think about resources in general. 
So interesting. I never, I never thought about it in that, in that context. Uh, I guess the, the overly simplified question is, can we infrastructure our way out of this mess? <laughs> can we build our way out of it? Yeah. So this is uh, everybody's favorite solution, which is just to build desalination plants. And so we'll just use the ocean water. We'll run it through like some filters and then we'll have fresh water. That perspective ignores the extremely high capital cost of desalination plant environmental lawsuits, which in the U.S. are probably some of the worst in the world, and then the ongoing operating costs of running a desalination plant. So what that means is, uh, and, and the case that I am very familiar with is, is the, the plant that was built in San Diego. It just went online a couple of years ago in Carlsbad, California, which is right next to San Diego. The plant cost a billion dollars to build, which I think is roughly double what it would cost outside of the United States. And that was mostly because of uh, various lawsuits and and all kinds of other uh, operating conditions. The plant also is uh, uses a tremendous amount of electricity to run the sea salt water through reverse osmosis filters. And then even so, the plant only supplies uh, 7% of the water demand for San Diego. When I was having a, a couple beers one time, I figured out that California would need something like uh, 130 plants of this size to supply its needs for food and, sorry, the needs for agriculture and urban and industrial water consumption, 135 desalination plants for California alone. And if you kind of play with those numbers, then the U.S. would need, uh, you know, a couple thousand of the plants. And that process would make a lot of construction engineers very wealthy, a lot of oil companies very happy, and it would be a spectacular expensive project, the environmental impacts would be enormous. And then you have that last problem of how do you get water from the ocean to Kansas? If you want those farmers in the Ogallala region to in Nebraska and so on to keep using water and they have no local water and you want to import it from the Mississippi River, which is something that's been discussed, or you want to import it via desalination, then you have to spend a huge amount of money, not just on pipelines, but also pumping that water up and down hills. So Number one, I don't think there's any budget for it from the federal government. Number two, no farmer would fund it. They had to pay it out of their own pocket. And number three, it would be a ridiculous amount of work relative to maintaining the natural sources that are supplying water almost for free compared to these, these sources. If we start really pricing water to reflect its true value, including the value of the scarcity of the resource, what does that look like in real life? How does that help us? So it helps us by balancing supply and demand. And we can see this any day with the oil market, right? Uh, or the gasoline market, which is very related to the oil market. And what that means is that when you go to get gasoline, there's always gasoline at the gas station. The only exceptions we see for this is government intervention, which happened in the early 70s during the oil crisis. And it, the government kept the price low. And then all the gas stations ran out of gas because uh, demand was greater than supply. The second time we see this is a natural disasters, and you know I think we have to allow for things to not work in natural disasters. So if there's a price on water, supply and demand will balance. Number two, the price on water is going to vary all over the place. It's going to depend, you know, your 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 drinking water from your tap. That price depends on the infrastructure in your city, depends on the water sources in your city, depends on if people in your city have swimming pools or if they just you know take a shower for two minutes. So there's a whole bunch of factors going on there in terms of prices. With agricultural water, which is not treated, it's not pressurized, it's much cheaper, 
compared to urban water, but those prices will also vary by local supply and demand, usually in the watershed. And, and that's going to, those prices, what they'll do is they'll more or less, in, in the most simple way, they'll keep the total demand for water within the, the total supply so you actually don't run out of water, which is the thing, which is the worst thing to happen. Great, David Zetlin. I really appreciate this. I mean, I, the, I mean, just the the notion of trying to to cover water to- issues in one podcast episode is ridiculous. But uh, I think we got to to a lot of really interesting ideas, and I think this is just the tip of the iceberg. So, would love to extend an invitation to you to come back on in the future uh, if you're up for it. Um, and uh, would also like to invite everybody listening to go check out your work. And where's the best place to send them to do that? Yeah, great question. So, and, and first of all, I'm very happy to come back. If your listeners have questions, maybe they can poke you with a bunch of questions and we can do a, a part two in a month or two and or whenever your schedule applies. And the best place to find out about me is probably by going to my personal website, which is called kysq.org. So killyourstatusquo.org. And then I recommend uh, that anybody who's interested in these topics download my free book, which is called Living with Water Scarcity. It's in English and Spanish and Farsi. And that book is, is it's not just that it's free, but it's 100 pages. And it also kind of covers all of these issues from, the, from a high level so that you can see how they fit together without getting buried by the details. So that's kind of my intro text that I recommend. Thank you again to Dr. David Zetlin for being on the show. I highly recommend each of you go to David's website and pick up your free, that's right, free PDF of Living with Water Scarcity. This is going to be a sign of things to come. I, I do hope to do some more water episodes in the in the coming weeks and months because I think it's an extremely interesting and relevant topic for, for a lot of the places in the world that rely on irrigation for our agricultural production. And it's, it's a bit shameful that I haven't done more to highlight these issues in the past. So I'm going to make up for that with, with some upcoming episodes that I think you'll really enjoy. It's time now for our five-minute farmer segment. This is a brand new segment. It's part of the show. This is only the fourth time we've done this, where we highlight an agricultural producer, so a farmer or rancher, that has a direct offering. So if you're saying to yourself, boy, I really love the Future of Agriculture podcast, I'd love to support the show, or I'd love to find people in agriculture that I can directly support, here's your chance. You can just hop online and buy something from these individuals. I also think it's a sign of things to come for the future of agriculture. I think there will be more and more direct-to-consumer offerings as a result of technology and just connectivity in the future. And so we'd love to highlight the work that these sort of pioneers are doing in this direct-to-consumer space. We have on the show today Will Scholze. Will and his brother Theo are third-generation dairy farmers in Humbird, Wisconsin. They recently decided to also start marketing some direct-to-consumer beef. Through their business, Scholze Family Beef, they can ship to Wisconsin, Illinois, Minnesota, Iowa, Nebraska, North Dakota, and South Dakota. So if you live in any of those states, you could buy some beef from Schulze Family Beef today. But my first question, and maybe the question you're asking yourselves there, what are third-generation dairy farmers doing selling beef? We are transitioning our herd from Holsteins to Jerseys, um, and that's mainly because of feed efficiency of Jerseys, and we're getting paid on the components more so than volume. So we're switching to Jerseys. And the little Jersey bull calves weren't worth very much money, so we were looking for a way to add value to them. 
And then we, so that was one of the reasons. And then we, we had moved our heifers off site to a heifer grower because we didn't have any, like a, we didn't really have any facilities. We just kind of had some pastures that we stuck them on. So we had these pastures that weren't being used anymore. So we decided that we would, could raise these beef on, on the pastures. And then we also, I don't know how familiar you are with the dairy industry, but you clean up all your feed every single morning when you start feeding again on a dairy and you call that refusals or waybacks. And we used to feed them to our heifers to raise our heifers, but heifers were no longer on site. So we decided to use those waybacks or refusals to help us finish these beef off. So there wasn't any like one reason that we got into it. It just had a lot of synergies with our dairy. So that's why we got into it, I guess. Such a cool example of the problem solving that goes on at the farm level. And this too often gets left out of the sustainability conversation is when you are actually practically solving problems on the farm related to how to maximize your efficiency and your capacity for the sustainability of the business and the sustainability of all the resources that are being consumed. A lot of times the the solution is more livestock on the land. I was curious, though, what convinced Will to go direct to consumer? Just kind of saw a few things. I happened to see, I don't know if you're familiar with Butcher Box. I happened to see that and it kind of got my wheels turning a little bit. And I, I thought, oh, you know what? He's just buying beef and reselling it. Why can't we have the beef? Why can't we do something similar? So we just kind of decided to give it a try, <laughs> which has been a little harder than I anticipated to get customers. But hey, that's how it goes. This is a challenge that comes up quite often as I talk to producers that are trying to sell direct to consumer. Uh, it's it's crazy because there's so much effort that needs to go into just producing the product. You know, in Will's case, he had to come up with a program for breeding his dairy cows to beef bulls. Uh, he It takes 18 to 20 months to raise an animal. He had to form relationships with processors and shippers to get the product direct to consumer. But yet the, still, the biggest problem is just getting the word out there that he has this product uh, in front of the right customers. I asked him, what's working now to get the word out? We're, we are spending advertising dollars on Facebook to try to draw customers uh, we've worked with a couple. I uh, just started working with a guy that's involved with some fitness nutrition. I actually did a podcast with him as well. I've been doing some promotion stuff with him, hoping to to get some customers. But so far, it's been Facebook advertising has been our big one, other than farmers markets and some of these local food events that we've found. So that's our hardest thing. And then the other challenge we have is that, like, it's really easy to sell your premium steaks, your nice roasts, but you end up with a lot of things that are harder to sell, like oxtail, which is, you know, just the tail, heart, tongue, stuff like that that's a little harder to move. And so just kind of managing inventory, you know, all of a sudden someone will want to come in and buy a whole bunch of steaks. And then you have to have enough to supply them and still have enough storage space for all the other hamburger and stuff you have to have at the same time. So inventory and finding customers, I'd say, are our two biggest challenges. So even though the Schulzes are being very, very smart with how they're producing this beef using excess capacity from their dairy operation, and even though they're going direct to consumer and capturing more of the value in theory for themselves rather than give it to someone else, this model still has a lot of challenges. It's a lot more complicated than just the commodity agriculture model. And it's not as simple as just, you know, hanging your shingle and they will come. I thought Will had some great comments here about the difference from just kind of going with the flow and doing, you know, more large-scale commodity agriculture and this direct-to-consumer idea. 
you know, we we're a, we do cash crop grain and we do our dairy. We don't really have that problem if we maybe don't like the price, but we always have a buyer. I can load up a semi-load of corn and I can haul it to the co-op any day of the week. I maybe don't get the price I want, but I can still sell it, right? But now with this, I've got to like convince someone to buy <laughs> from me. And uh, and you got to get them. Once again, if I hauled, say, a load of corn to the co-op that was out of condition or something, I'd get docked. They'd take my next load that was coming in just fine, too. If I send someone bad meat, they're probably never going to buy it from me again, and they're probably going to tell their friends not to buy it from me again. So you have to be a lot more careful, making sure that you're always putting, you know, really good product out there and don't send anything that's, you know, not good. You have to find a way to, you know, move it elsewhere if it's not meeting the standard that you want to deliver to your customers. So it's, it's a lot different in that respect than commodity farming, I guess. So there is no question that this direct-to-consumer model has its challenges, and Will did a great job of outlining them there. But the Scholzes are making it work. So if you live in Wisconsin, Illinois, Minnesota, Iowa, Nebraska, North Dakota, or South Dakota, I really encourage you to hop online right now to Scholze Family Beef. That's S-C-H-O-L-Z-E, family, F-A-M-I-L-Y, beef, B-E-E-F, dot com, Scholze Family Beef dot com and pick some up from will i highly encourage you to support this you know where it's coming from you know the extra benefits of utilizing the excess capacity and how that impacts the sustainability of not only will's dairy but but just the the amount of resources that went in to produce that stuff to begin with so anyway love this story i love just the realness of will in talking about both the benefits and the challenges of direct to consumer agriculture that's it for this week thanks so much for listening to the show i highly value your time and attention and just how entrepreneurial and intellectually curious this audience is that listen to the show thank you so much we'll be back next week with more ag innovation Hey, thanks again for listening to the Future of Agriculture podcast. If you like what you heard here today, I'd love to connect with you further. Go over to futureofag.com. That's futureofag.com. And let me know a good email address for you so we can keep in touch. Also, you'll be able to check out a ton of bonus content on the blog while you're there. Otherwise, make sure you're subscribed to the show so you can catch another fascinating ag innovator here next week. Hey.